I'm uh, Todd, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Glad Tidings, and I'm glad you're here. And uh, we are doing this series over the Easter season, just uh, three Sundays, two Sundays, three services, and uh, it's called The Faces of Easter, and we're going to get into that this morning. And uh, so what I want you to do is stand with me, and I need to apologize in advance, not for you standing, stand, um, but we have a ridiculously long text today, 29 verses. So um, for those of you that are visiting with us, one of the things we like to do um, is we like to read the text together as a congregation. So you'll sort of get the hang of it in just a minute. And I'm going to be reading the yellow, and you're going to be reading the white. And this is from John's Gospel. The, uh, so if you're new to the Bible, go halfway, uh, two-thirds through, it'll open the New Testament. Matthew is the first book. Mark's the next one, Luke, and then John, and just flip to the end of John. But if you've got a device... Uh, It's much easier, and you should know how to operate that if you have one, right? Okay, here we go. This is the text. So John chapter 20, verses 1 to 29. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which is John, by the way, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him. He must have been in worse shape than John. And went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths cloths laying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped to look, or stooped rather, to look into the tomb. And as she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lain, one at the head and one at the feet, and they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Interesting text. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, 
The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, and Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And all the doors, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray together. Father, we pause today thanking you again for Jesus Christ. That he who was crucified and died has risen from the dead. And on this day, we celebrate his resurrection. But the truth is, for us as Christ followers, every day and every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. But Lord, we ask today for the help of your Holy Spirit to help us to speak clearly, to understand, to hear with our ears, to understand with our hearts, and to comprehend with our minds, so that when we leave this place, this property, and go out into our homes and our neighborhoods and the places where we work and where we get our education and where we find our services and any and everywhere that we go. Lord, that we may live out the truth of your love and your grace and your mercy in practical, meaningful ways. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Why don't you be seated? To say that following Good Friday, that the followers of Jesus were devastated and disappointed and began to despair is really to understate it. Everything they believed up to this point was brought into question. The death of Jesus wiped them out. And the crucifixion destroyed their hopes. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, there's a a character by the name of Cleopas, and and he expresses the, the thoughts and the feelings of the disciples when he says these words to Jesus. They don't know yet that it's Jesus, but he says these words, We had hoped. We had hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. We had hoped. This is what I call the Easter gap. The gap between what the disciples and the followers of Jesus experienced and what had really happened. We had hoped. The gap between what they understood and didn't understand and what Jesus actually said to them about his death and about his resurrection. 
In verse 9 it says, they did not yet understand the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. And they are stuck between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. They are wedged between the past and the present. And it is like an eternal yesterday. An eternal silent Saturday. That terrible in-between time. But when the sun comes up on Easter Sunday morning, the shadows flee from the faces of the disciples in different ways and in different times. For Mary Magdalene, it was Easter Sunday morning. For Peter, it was about a week to ten days later. For Simon, or rather for Thomas, it was actually eight days later. And these are the faces that we are going to look into this morning. The faces of Easter. The three people, among the three people that are mentioned in John's Easter account. The first face that we look into is the face of despair, which is the face of Mary Magdalene. Mary goes early in the morning to the tomb, and as she travels the deserted pre-dawn streets to the tomb, she can still feel the empty ache within Magdalene refers to the town, actually, that she is from, Magdala, which was a little bit west of the Sea of Galilee. And Luke, in chapter 8, verse 2, sort of gives us her story in a nutshell. And he writes these words and says, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And so Mary's life could be characterized as from demonic possession to undying devotion. Before Mary met Jesus, she didn't have much of a life. Before Mary met Jesus, her life was in pieces. And on the day that Jesus delivered her from the seven demons and he set her free, she had felt something that she hadn't felt in a long, long time. She felt hope. And from that day on, She had been a constant follower and supporter of Jesus. She was there by his side to the very end. So it doesn't surprise us that we find Mary Magdalene at the cross, even though it was dangerous for her to be there. It doesn't surprise us that she was there when they put him in the tomb. But neither does it surprise surprise us that she is the first one who goes to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, and neither does it surprise us that she is the first person to whom Jesus speaks after his resurrection. So I think you might agree with me this morning that when I refer to Mary as being hopelessness personified, We may understand it. Death. We are told and have experienced more than anything else brings hopelessness. And the followers of Jesus are experiencing its darkness. Hopelessness is one of the worst words in our vocabulary. It's still dark when Mary makes her way to the tomb But she can see that the stone has been rolled away, it's been moved, and assuming the worst. That his body has been stolen, and who knows what they've done with it. 
Of course, unless you've been living in, the, in a cave the last all your life, you know that this is not the end of the story. What happens next has become the foundation of faith for hundreds of millions of people, for us, for me, and for you for the last 20 centuries. Hopelessness, or hopeless, is one of the worst words in our human vocabulary. But one of the most powerful words in our human vocabulary is And Easter's resurrection hope is not an empty tomb. We can travel to Israel and we can go visit the empty tomb at the garden tomb or or we can go to the holy sepulcher. They're really not sure which one it actually is. But we can go there and we can see and we can visit the empty tomb. But Easter's resurrection truth is a person. That Jesus Christ is alive. And what made the difference in Mary's life and your life and my life and our lives is not a physical empty tomb, but an encounter with the living, risen Jesus. The same thing will be true of another Easter face. The face of denial. Peter. And this happens about a week to 10 days after the resurrection. Now, we really can't talk about Easter without talking about Peter. Because the truth is that we love Peter and we loathe Peter. We love Peter because he's so much like us and we are so much like him. But we loathe him for the same reasons, because he is so much like us and we are so much like him. Eugene Peterson said this. When we think about it, when we think about Peter, for all of his prominence in the telling of the gospel story, Peter does not strike us as much much of a very promising leader. Matter of fact, most of what Peter actually said about and in relation to Jesus was actually wrong. He was wrong at Caesarea Philippi after confessing that Jesus is the Christ. He was right about that. But then he was wrong that he tried to prevent Jesus from going to the cross and to Jerusalem, the crucifixion. And that's where we get that famous line, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. He was wrong at the Mount of Transfiguration when he tried to turn the glory of God into a tourist attraction. Let's build three tents. He was wrong in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cut off the Malchus's ear and he, he thought that serving Jesus could be done so by using violence. He was wrong at the trial of Jesus when he swore and denied that he did not know Jesus. And he was wrong after the resurrection when he decided that he was going to go out fishing and take seven or six of the other disciples with him. One of the things that our text in John chapter 20 tells us is this, is that Jesus was radically reconfigured and redefined after the resurrection. Did you notice when we are reading 
And the Bible tells us that the windows and doors were locked for fear, and Jesus came and stood among them, that he appeared and disappeared at will. He went through closed doors. He was radically reconfigured and redefined after the resurrection. So much so that Mary Magdalene, who knew Jesus extremely well and would have recognized him anywhere, when she was at the tomb, the Bible, our text tells us that she didn't know that it was Jesus speaking to her. She thought it was the gardener. Josh, our son Josh, our middle son Josh, he um, had some friends come up from Georgia a couple weeks ago. And um, so they came to visit us. And uh, one, of the, one of them, Kathy, told us this story. Uh, she travels a lot, and uh, she told us this story about one of her traveling events. She had to go to um, fly to Italy, and she was flying first class, and she was flying Delta. And of course, she, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an evening flight, and so she's got her boarding pass, and she goes into the aircraft, and she's really not paying attention as she's trying to find first class. She doesn't know if it's at the front of the plane or in the middle of the plane, whatever it is. And so she walks up, or she says to this, um, this um, airline, this, the, the steward there, the uh, person who is in charge, the attendant, and uh, she sees through her peripheral vision that, you know, he's got a blue suit on and a, and a, and a red tie. And she says, uh, excuse me, uh, looking at her boarding pass, she says, can you tell me where my seat is? And there's a pause. And she says again, she says, excuse me, still not looking up yet. Looking at her card, she says, "I I can't find my seat. Can you tell me where I can find my seat? And there's another pause. And finally, she looks up, and it's former U.S. President Jimmy Carter in a Navy suit with a red tie. And all the way to Italy, she had to sit in first class with President Jimmy Carter sitting immediately behind her and his bodyguards on either side. Mary didn't recognize Jesus because he was radically reconfigured and redefined by the resurrection. But so were the disciples. So were the followers of Jesus, radically redefined and reconfigured after the resurrection, but in different ways. And I think we would agree that nobody is more radically reconfigured and more redefined after the resurrection than Peter. Ten days ago, Peter is in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest, observing the trial of Jesus. And John tells us that it was a cold night. And he says that the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire. Now, file that in your mind, a charcoal fire. Because it was cold. And they were warming, standing around and warming themselves. And Peter was doing the same thing, standing with them. And and one of them said to Peter, questioned him about whether or not he knew who Jesus was. And the gospel tells us that he denied Jesus and said, no, I don't know who he is. He did it three times. And Matthew and Mark's account says that he actually swore 
when he said it. And then we fast forward. And we come to John chapter 21. And now this is after the resurrection. And Peter is on the beach in Galilee. And he has just eaten breakfast that Jesus has prepared for the disciples over another charcoal fire. By the word, by the way, the word charcoal is the word anthracion. Just for free as we're going on, I think it's where we get the word anthrax. It's got nothing to do with what I'm saying today. But here's the other interesting thing. Anthracion only appears in the Bible in two places. Only in two places. That's the only place the word appears. Two places. On the night of the trial of Jesus and on the beach in Galilee after the resurrection. And the connection of a charcoal fire is to pull the memory of that awful night of shame into the present for Peter. And that's why there are three. And, and most of us know there are three questions. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? By Jesus. And there are three affirmations by Peter. You know I do. You know I do. I know. You know I do. To reverse and redeem the three denials. And you know what gets me about this? Easter tells us, Easter tells me that we can be forgiven. Easter tells me that you can be forgiven. Matter of fact, Easter tells us that you and I, that we can forgive ourselves and that no one has to be continually defined by their sin and by their mistakes and by their regrets and by their actions. This is Easter's hope. And for as long as Peter lived, he would never forget the link between a night of denials and an Easter morning of grace and forgiveness. We are told in our culture and in our current climate, we are urged not to accept or embrace anything as true with insufficient evidence. And thankfully, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, we don't have to. Because the resurrection of Jesus is credible and it is relevant. It's credible because it's true. Because the overwhelming evidence makes it reasonable, co coherent, and it makes sense. But it's relevant because it connects with our lives. It's relevant because it meets a need in my life. It's relevant because it satisfies a need in your life in our lives. And Peter's post-resurrection encounter with Jesus teaches us that. That it's credible and it's re relevant. But it also teaches us this. Most of us who have lived 
any length of time, can feel the point of what Julian Norwich once said. Sin, and being a sinner, is the worst scourge with which a human being can be tormented. Sin is a problem. But sin also is a severe symptom and disastrous consequence of an even deeper issue. The resurrection of Jesus Christ rescues us not just from sin, but from our fallenness. And Peter teaches us this. Our third and final face that we want to look into today is the face of doubt. And that's Thomas. Now, negatively, Thomas has been known by the dubious distinction of being Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas is as a definite ring to it. It's not exactly the most complimentary thing that can be said about a Christ follower. So it raises the questions, are Christians gullible? And I suspect that some of us are, but John wants us to know that there is one that is not. Thomas's motto is, seeing is believing. He's the first man from Missouri before the state ever existed. You know what I'm talking about? Show me. It's the show me state. Unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my fingers in the mark of the nails and to place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Show me. Now, Jude, the second last book in the Bible, says this. It tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. And this is how Jesus deals with Thomas. Now listen to the story again. You see, Jesus begins or began with people where they were. We see that all through the Bible. All through the New Testament. We see that with Nicodemus when he talks about the future of Israel. We see it when he talks to the woman at the well when he asks for a drink. We see it with the 5,000. He just provides a basic need for their lives. They're hungry. And we see it when he deals with Martha and Mary in the death of Lazarus. And then our text tells us in verse 26 that eight days later, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and this time Thomas was with them. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when we read that verse in verse 26, we're left with the idea, that the, with the impression that it is there primarily for Thomas's sake. Jesus always seemed to connect with the interest of of the person. Now, what's interesting about Jesus is that he did not condemn Thomas for his doubt. Matter of fact, I like that about Jesus. 
I mean, Jesus didn't condemn him, although he could have, and he certainly, Jesus didn't scorn Thomas for his hesitation. But what's interesting is this. Jesus does the exact opposite. He actually provided evidence. And Jesus offers proof to Thomas. In verse 27, Jesus says to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands, and put your hand in the place in my side. Jesus never condemns him, but actually does the exact opposite. Provides proof. Now, we refer to Thomas as... No, no. We we refer to Thomas as... Doubting Thomas. But do you know something? The New Testament never refers to Thomas as a doubter. And for me... That's good news. And I suspect that for you, this is good news. Here's why. Our text calls Thomas, it it refers to him as Thomas called the twin. Now, I noticed that um, um, Sarah's here today, and uh, most most families, most uh, young couples have children one at a time. But Sarah and Joel decided that they would have the two at a time. And so there's a twin. And Liam and Lincoln, or William and Lincoln, yeah, right? Okay, there. So, so Thomas is a twin. But here's the problem. Where's Thomas's twin? Where is Thomas's brother or sister? They are never mentioned in the biblical text. They're never mentioned. Or maybe a better question is who, not where, but who is Thomas's twin? Now I think I know who it is. I think I know who Thomas's twin is. Are you ready? It's me. It's also you. It's me and you. Every Christian who is honest will admit that there are times in all of our lives, no matter how long we've been in the faith or how mature we are as believers, that we all have questions. We all have doubts from time to time about the Bible, about faith, about God, about Christianity. We all have them. And that makes me and you Thomas's twin. I have a friend of mine who loves to say, and he's a lot older than me, he loves to say this. He says, you know, as I mature in the faith, and he's a pastor, and as I get older, he says, I don't have fewer questions. I just have deeper questions. We are Thomas's twin. And how Jesus responds to Thomas in our text is how we will respond to you and I. As I said, for all of us, we have all had doubts and questions and uncertainties. But Easter tells us 
that the way Jesus responds to Thomas is the exact same way that Jesus responds to you and to me, to us. It's the Easter hope. So whether it is a questionable past and despair, whether it is denial, or whether it's doubt, the hope of Easter is we can be forgiven. And our past does not have to define us. So the last thing that I want us to do on this Easter Sunday morning is I want us to stand. And I think the proper response today for all of us who are Christ followers, for all of us who are Christians who name the name of Jesus, who profess faith, on this Easter Sunday morning, that we affirm our faith as Christ followers. And by the way, those of you today that are visiting and you've been brought here by your family and we're glad you're here, but maybe it's possible you and some of you that are watching online today, you have not said yes to God's offer of love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And so you can use these same words as a prayer of repentance to say yes on this Easter morning of grace and forgiveness. Let's begin together. Everybody, I renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. I renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. I renounce all sinful desires that draw me from the love of God. I turn to Jesus Christ and accept Him as Savior. I put my whole trust in His grace and love. And I promise to follow and obey Him as my Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, on this Easter Sunday morning, we celebrate the hope that Easter brings. But it is not an empty tomb. It is an encounter with the living, risen Jesus. And I pray today that every single believer in this room and those watching online today will experience the joy and the excitement of Easter. And for those today that have prayed this prayer and used it as a prayer of repentance who have never said yes to God's offer of love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and today they have said, yes, yes. May the love of God and the Holy Spirit just burst forth in their lives. Lord, I pray even as they leave this place that sky will be bluer, and Lord, the colors will be more vivid, and there will be a spring in their step. We thank you for the hope of the living, risen Jesus. Amen.